Well, good morning and welcome back to Review and Renew Psychology and the Sacraments. I'm Maureen McGuire. I'm your facilitator. I'm also a lifelong Catholic and a counselor. You know, I was, some people just came up and asked if they could get some of the handouts from before, and I, I wanted to say I designed this actually to be progressive, where we started with our Lenten obligations, and then I helped provide some psycho-spiritual education to help you, you know, fulfill those, um, those intentions that you had. And I think it's okay that we have people hopping in at different times. So those of you who are joining now at week three, we'll do our best to try to help, you know, catch you up a little bit. But so before we start, just like, just like boxing, we have to review the rules. Uh, I wanted to point out that even though this is being streamed, when people want to share a comment or ask a question or something, people can't see you. And I'm not going to be um, using your names, mostly because I can't read the name tags still. Um, but anyway, if anybody does share something with you privately, I would just be hopeful that you would keep it in the room. And then also to remember that I am in my facilitator role here, but I'm still a mandated reporter. So if anybody does share something, I have some limits to my confidentiality. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get started with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, as we deepen our conversions, help us to use any pain that we encounter any time along the way to grow closer to you. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week we reviewed the sacrament of the Eucharist, those of you who are here, as the center of our Catholic faith, and we looked at how we can continue to develop that love relationship with our Lord. We discussed also that it's our responsibility to direct our thoughts onto the Eucharist in thought, word, and deed in order to protect against any possibility of turning away from God. We also learned the personal development concept of cognitive distortions. And those are the thinking errors that develop from our growth experiences that require challenging to prevent any interference in our Catholic mission. This week, we're focused on the sacrament of the anointing of the sick and the personal development concept of emotional regulation. So I'm going to go ahead and start by reviewing the definition of the anointing of the sick according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You, you also, did everybody get a handout because I passed those out earlier? And then we'll, we'll hold off on the handouts until I, I tell you which one to, to grab out of the, the packet there. So according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, by the sacred anointing of the sick and the prayer of the priest, the whole church commends those who are ill to the suffering and glorified Lord, that he may raise them up and save them. And indeed, she exhorts them to the contribute to the good of the people of God by freely uniting themselves to the passion and the death of Christ. So I think it's pretty easy this week when we're correlating the sacraments with the personal development concept to see that the anointing of the sick and the concept of emotional regulation are pretty easy to connect because uh, if you've ever been in need of the anointing of sick, you can recognize that it stimulates a lot of emotion when people are in that position. But it's important to learn to regulate the emotion from the perspective that love for ourself and others requires a consistent effort to keep that balance of positive current flowing within us. 
because the emotion is what interrupts and interferes with that current when you're just tooling along and then something happens. But without working to maintain that connection, and this is important, you're taking notes, we can allow disorder outside to stimulate an emotional dis-ease inside, and that can present itself as illness. So I'll, I'll say that again. If you allow disorder outside to stimulate emotional dis-ease inside, it can create and present itself as illness. And guys, I, I have to add another, I, I see a lawyer in the crowd here. I have to add another disclaimer. Um, Maureen is not saying if you have cancer that you brought it on yourself. Okay, nobody misunderstand that. But what it's important to remember is that when you're dealing with chronic illness or any kind of illness of any kind, that it's going to signal a lifestyle change. Okay, from anything from well, it sounds stupid, but like athlete's foot to cancer, okay? If you get athlete's foot, you might not want to walk around in the public gym with no shoes. You know, I mean, these are things that are stimulating a lifestyle change. You have to be thinking about it. What does this mean? Rather than falling into this panic and not knowing what to do, it's going to give you something. It's a signal for some sort of change. Similarly, this week, we're talking about things that involve emotion, but any kind of unresolved trauma can manifest itself as a persistent toxic stress. It's something that's working on you all the time, and you may or may not be aware of it, but it weakens the immune system and then leaves you vulnerable to things. Have you ever noticed that when you're like in college or something and you're getting ready for finals and then you suddenly become ill? You're stressed, okay? So that can create a situation that makes you vulnerable to physical illness, but it definitely makes you vulnerable to mismanagement of emotions, okay? So does anybody know off the top of their head how many times anxiety is mentioned in the Bible? 53 times, 53 times. And we're talking, going to talk a little more about anxiety today than depression, but I'm going to bring it up because when we look at the anointing of the sick, I've been in the hospital and dispensing communion and been around that a lot. And I can tell you that anxiety is the primary emotion that comes up when people are faced with a real difficult medical condition or something. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first one, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and you can follow along on your paper. Faith is the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. And then Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good, and in some versions it says kind or encouraging, word makes it glad. And then the last one, Matthew 6, 34. <laughs> so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. So what do we think that means? That consistent reference in the Bible. This has been around a long time where people find themselves in a situation where they lose sight of what's important and get swept away by those feelings of anxiety. I looked at the first one and I was thinking about the salvation. If we are in fact faithful... We, don't, we know where things are going to end up. So that's where you want to start 
when something alarming or disturbing or distressing comes into your life, remember we talked about people, places, or things that can create those things outside of you, when that happens, start from the place of faith. You know where this is going to end. And I was thinking about, I heard this, uh, I was in Texas recently, and I heard this minister talking about how um, pre-recording football games of your favorite team that you maybe didn't have time to watch or something, and the excitement is, you know how it's going to turn out already, because somebody already spilled the beans and told you who won, right? But you still want to go back and watch it. But it's a lot more comforting because you know how it's going to turn out. Well, if you begin from that place when you're faced with a difficult diagnosis or you have something that happens, start from that place, you know how it's going to turn out. So you can just let that go and then begin to address it the way you need to do that. So if God allows dis-ease, disease, it's an indication that we need to seek comfort in the truth. When things are all disordered, we need to make order by anchoring in the things we can do something about and then make meaning of the pain. Because otherwise it's wasted. It's just wasted pain. And it doesn't do any good. So I've created my own definition of emotion also. Um, emotions are reactions that human beings experience in response to events or situations, people, places, or things, that can either detract or enhance the rightful awareness that we are alive to know him and love him. That's it. So it sounds simple. I know it sounds a lot simpler than it really is. But if you start from that place when we're trying to tackle something, it goes a lot easier. So <clears throat> I want to start with what are called negative emotions. Okay, those are things like anxiety, depression, anger, fear. We need to learn to regulate that distress long enough to identify the underpinning and then make use of the emotion to restore that connection to Christ. Because we were meant to be in a place of balance. That, that's how we were meant to be. We weren't meant to be swimming around in anxiety and guilt and shame and all those other negative emotions. But people need to look at it where, like those of you who are here from the beginning, calm down long enough to make an assessment. Hmm, I wonder where this is coming from. I wonder what this means. I wonder why I had such a reaction to that situation. What happened? And it's training. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to train yourself to do that. So I'm going to tell you kind of an icky example, but it's really poignant and important for you to see. If we don't look at what it means and we immediately seek to get away from the distress, we immediately try to mitigate it, you're not going to ever learn what the source is. You're not going to find the underpinning to it. And the example I can give you is I worked in a clinic where we were primarily dealing with people who were struggling with opioid addiction. There were other addictions and, and things as well, but chronic pain, opioid addiction, that kind of thing. So we had a guy who came in, and this is years ago, but he, he had uh, gone to the doctor initially for physical pain, gone to the doctor and couldn't really remember what happened, and the doctor gave him some medication. And those of you who are in kind of the know about this particular issue, substance use, uh, 
for those of you who are not, I'm going to be educating you on something. So years ago, when the pharmaceutical company wanted to addict everybody to pain medication, they infiltrated the insurance companies and set the protocols for the doctors. So the doctors were bound by these protocols. So for example, this gentleman went into the doctor. Doctor says, on a scale of 1 to 10, where's your pain level? If you said 5 or above, he started you on a very high dose of Oxycontin. Started you. So by the time this guy got in, he was 18 months in, very addicted. And here was the, the icky part. It wasn't doing anything for the pain. But now he was addicted. So we had to find a way. The doctor I was working with helped him with the detox and all that. But when I was doing the assessment, my first question was, well, did you go back to the doctor and get reevaluated? This is 18 months, right? He goes, no. I said, well, you might want to do that. Went back to the doctor and discovered he was riddled with cancer. Now, I'm telling you that icky example because sometimes it's important to sit in the pain for a minute to look at what the source is. If you instantly want to get out of it, and don't believe I haven't been there. I mean, everybody's been there. You're like, oh, you know, you just want to get out of it. You don't care what happens. You just want out of that pain, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, whatever. You want out of it. But it's important to train yourself to sit in it for a minute. And one of the techniques I use with people is when they think they're either going to uh, succumb to either substances or something else, I have them get their, their stopwatches and set the stopwatch and then sit in it and see how long it takes to have that distress mitigated. I had one guy who told me, seven minutes. It was only seven minutes. I was certain I was going to be in the ER with a panic attack, you know, in seven minutes. So it's important to, to kind of implement some of those training techniques so that you can learn to manage and regulate those emotions better so you can make sense of it. Because again, if, if God allows this to happen, there's a good reason for it. I mean, many times I have to say, I, <laughs> I put that on my list, you know, for when I get to heaven. Okay, I'm not sure that was necessary. I don't think the person had to learn like that. That was pretty rough. You know, but you do. You have to figure that out. So when you layer down and you start to kind of make sense of some of these emotions, you'll find out that usually under them, when you layer down, you'll find, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel good enough. Happens. Happens to a lot of people. And people think that those thoughts and those feelings are permanent. Well, I'm here to tell you they're not. Okay, and my, my kids will tell you, I have this thing about people saying, I have anxiety. I have depression. I don't let people use that kind of language. It's an emotion. It's not to say it doesn't stimulate some biochemical responses. It does. But those can be balanced as well because the programming that I do is built on what's called a biopsychosocial model. We look at the whole thing. Just like today, we're looking at the anointing of the sick when people are faced with illness and we're looking at emotional regulation. And so when people say, well, that, that's not true. This, this is, this, really, it's permanent. I just have to learn to deal with it. Do you have happiness? Do you have joy? Do you have elation? 
Okay, are they permanent? No, it ebbs and flows. That's what life's all about. That's what happens. So it's easier to buy that, though, when it's negative, right? It's just so much easier to, to notice that, um, oh, oh, forever, I'm going to be sitting in this state of anxiety. No, you're not. There are techniques you can use. And right now, what we're lear learning for most people is they're learning to react from a spot of distress. I want you to learn to respond by proactively, when you're not in a state of distress, figuring out how can I generate some more of that joy? Because if stress is up here, then that means joy is way down here. And we need to bring them back into balance. They're going to be there for a reason. Stress is actually a good thing if it galvanizes you into doing something. If you can make meaning of it and then you do something about it. Many times I've done things like even approaching Father Len about this because I was tired of watching people come in after struggling for such a long time. And I want people to, to look at emotions the way they look at physical illness. You know, many times I worked with young folks who would, who would struggle with feelings of anxiety and depression and never tell anybody. Because that's what happens with behavioral health issues. It's hard to do anything preventatively because people who are struggling with behavioral health issues are virtually undetectable until those behaviors become public. Somebody commits a crime. Somebody has a meltdown at work. Somebody threatens suicide. You have no idea. I mean, especially the young kids, I would say, you're sitting in your bedroom with your hoodie on your head and not coming out and telling anybody. But if they were on a skateboard and fell off and hurt themselves, and that doctor gave them something, and they weren't better in 24 hours, <laughs> they would be on the phone asking, right? Because there's this odd shame around emotions. Okay, it, it, it's all a part of life. We have to look at the whole thing together. So does anybody remember the ABC model that we used where we were looking at the activating event that stimulates some interpretation around the belief that you may or may not be aware of that's underpinning it. And then there's a consequence by way of emotion or behavior. So right now, um, I'm going to introduce a little technique that's called dialectic behavioral uh, therapy. And it's a strategy, well, a series of strategies to help people learn how to make the most productive life in the event of an intense and amplified emotional reaction to a situation. So those of you who were here last week too also know I, I've given examples of where two people can experience the exact same thing and have very, very different reactions to those situations. Some of them are very, very intense. I, I can give a personal example of my daughter and I were um, at the mile marker during the Boston bombing and the, where the second explosion took off. And it was uh, absolute chaos at that time. And then why could I kind of anchor and focus and do something, but she at, at, at 19 years old was, was very stressed and, and was almost in a state of shock. Well, for one thing, I used to work in a prison. So that kind of thing happened a lot where people would have these outbursts and things and you had to learn to, how to react to it. But that's where you learn to manage those things. And so if you now, 
since uh, now you can open the packet. And if you want to open the packet now and take a look at one of these exercises, the first one, it'll say week three. Do you guys have that? Because there's some more over here. Um, week three, handout number one. So take a look at that one. So this one is about building emotional regulation skills. Now, this is not something we're going to do in five minutes here. This is going to take you a little, little bit of time that you can always take with you. But what you want to do is begin to kind of unpack it. When you have that first knife through the heart experience where you're like, oh, that felt awful. What was that? That's when you stop and you take a look at it and you take a big breath. I mean, and when you think about some of these things, we kind of do them naturally, right? Like if you walked into your house and found out the dog had torn up the pillow or, or something like that, don't we naturally stop and go, right? Because you know you're going to have to do something. Well, we want you to learn to stop, take a big breath, and then observe the situation as though you're telling me what happened, because eventually you're going to tell somebody, right? <laughs> something happens, you're eventually going to vent to somebody, right? So if in that moment when something happens, that's what you want to begin to do. And then you look at it from a, a different perspective. Really, how bad is this? What do I have to do? This is annoying. This is alarming. This is an emergent. I mean, you're making those kinds of assessments. But then what you have to do is make a different decision. You're going to make a plan that usually involves a different decision. So when you look at these, these skill sets, you're going to want to try to, to look at what you've typically done and maybe something different that you want to do. So if you have an emotion like anger, like Father talked about that early this morning, anger is one of those emotions I tell people that, you know, it, it's like they say anger that you hold on to is like drinking poison and waiting for that other person to die. Okay, when something happens it's not going to be very useful to you. Like Father mentioned this morning in his homily, it's, it's not helpful um, to be in a situation where you're holding on to that because it's, it's not doing anything. And I, I mentioned last week about anger in particular. My experience has been when people feel angry, it's, it's usually, I can bring it down to two things. They, they feel victimized in some way. Something happened where they feel out of control and victimized. And the other piece of it is that the person or the consequence or the systems that we're stuck into, uh, they don't make any sense to us, but we can't do anything about it. And nobody's been held accountable. That's the thing that will do people in when the other person didn't get held accountable. And especially when they didn't get held accountable in a way that we thought they should be, right? So let's say you experience some, some unjust situation and you feel it at a very high level, it may or may not justify that level of reaction from you, but a lot of it's a building process. It's been going on for a long time. You've felt wronged or whatever over different circumstances for a while. So this other one, when you hear you know, people say the straw that broke the camel's back, that's what happens, is something happens and you go, wait a minute, wait, how do, how do we have this reaction when this is what actually happened? Well, a lot of it is the buildup of that. So when you look at this example, you want to look at the facts. What really happened? What event triggered that emotion? 
what interpretations or assumptions might I be making about that? And does my emotion and its intensity match the facts or does it just match my assumptions? Remember one of the thinking errors was making assumptions. So if you're driving on the 405 freeway in LA and someone cuts you off, do you really think that person got up in the morning and said, I'm going to go seek out Maureen and cut her off and see what kind of a reaction I can get? Feels like that a lot in LA, doesn't it? Anybody ever had the unfortunate experience of driving there? Um, so take a look at that one a little bit longer when you get home. And then we're going to talk a little more about how the situation when you follow this kind of more step-by-step uh, -step approach to it, it's, it's a way for you to do something when you can't do something. Okay, I don't know if that's making a whole lot of sense right now, but I like this. There's this Russian proverb that says, pray to God, but row to shore. Okay, you can start with the prayer, but then you got to do something sometimes. So always want to be focusing back on what can I do? We're always pretty clear about what we can't do. There's a lot of things that happen that we didn't expect to have happen, or they seem very wrong, or very unjust, or very unfair. But what can you do? So one of the examples, too, is when there's so much disorder going on, so much chaos out, outside of us, the one thing we can do is make order in our own lives. You have to control what you can. So can you get your house clean? Can you decide what you're going to eat? Can you include exercise during your day? Can you come to mass in the morning? Can you do some of those things that do give you some sense of peace and joy? Well, do it. What are you waiting on? Do you want to create that? We can't do much about that. And a lot of that comes to the biochemical influence. So when people have had a series of traumatic things happen to them, it stimulates that kind of fight or flight kind of reaction. And that can generate a higher anxiety level. Uh, I've worked a lot with uh, combat veterans who have been typically in active duty, um, a combat tour about a year, right? And then they rotate um, in and out. But pretty much for a year, you've been awake. I mean, you might be sleeping, but you're kind of sleeping with one eye open. They're never fully sleeping. So it's very hard to shut off and close down that part of your brain. It's, it's a, the, we talked about neuroplasticity. It's that persistent stimulation. So what happens then is you're now living for a, a consistent period of time at a really high level of anxiety. Okay, you're just, you're living that way. It's that persistent toxic kind of stress I was talking about. So oftentimes people inadvertently, subconsciously recreate that. They'll start to implement some new techniques, start feeling better, start managing things a little bit better, and then they'll go out and self-sabotage. Like I had to have people who had been sober for like three months, and then you'd ask them what's going on. Oh, yeah, I told my boss what he could do with it. Oh, and what was that all about? Well, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. Just one day, I just, <laughs> just decided to do that. You went, okay, so now he's back up into that high level of anxiety that he's created himself. 
and doesn't realize it. So those are the things I want you to be aware of. Has anybody heard of the term epigenetics? Anybody ever heard that term? So Father was talking earlier today um, about, well, this week is St. Patrick's Day, so he and I share our Irish Catholic heritage. But the study of epigenetics is how the environment and other factors, and, and I'm only going to be talking about psychosocial factors today because I'm not a doctor, but can influence the way our genes are expressed. Okay, so things that we feel were genetically predisposed to, you can actually make different decisions to keep those genes from activating at a higher level. Okay, so for example, I, I was years and years ago when I first started out working as a counselor, I, I had twin teenage guys that came in for counseling and their dad was a very severe alcoholic and, and it, it was, he wasn't an angry alcoholic, so he was kind of the life of the party guy, so everybody liked him, but everybody also was aware that he was an alcoholic. So these two guys came in for counseling because they were both acting like buffoons in school and things like that. And one of them said to me, well, you know, my dad's an alcoholic, so I guess that's kind of my destiny. And the other one said, well, I don't want that. And I said, well, the second one's right. Now, you're both a little right, but you can decide what you're going to do. Do you want to activate that gene or not? And a little, a little side note on, on alcoholism, like everybody wanted to know this this morning, but one of the things that happens in terms of alcoholism is that you have an enzyme that exists in your brain that will stay dormant until you activate it. So ordinarily when alcohol is consumed, the chemical component of alcohol is converted to water in your kidney and liver and you excrete it. But when you've activated that enzyme in your brain through overdrinking and, and some of a predisposition, then the chemical component of alcohol attaches to the enzyme in the brain and converts the alcohol to water in the brain. Okay, and that's what creates that residual. That's when you're at the point of alcoholism where you can no longer have any. It's just, you can't unring that bell. So it's important for people to know those kinds of things because those are examples of things that we can't do anything about once that's happened. So you are going to have to learn to manage with those kinds of things because then the organ of the brain is damaged. And when that happens, it's, it's actually a very uh, gut-wrenching experience when I worked with the doctor and he would have to tell people that they were at that stage. And sometimes people would say, that, you know, people are, are trying to, to kind of get a do-over sometimes, but they'll say things like, you know, I, I found out there's this, this really great test. You can go and, and have it done and they can check your brain to see if you've actually, you know, stimulated that and become an alcoholic. And my response is, well, yeah, you can do that. Or you can try stopping. See if that works. If it doesn't, then you know that you're at that point that 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 has happened. So those are the kinds of things I want you to look at in terms of emotions. Unless the organ of the brain is damaged, you can do something, okay? And it doesn't mean that there's not a biochemical shift taking place. It does. It happens. But you have to make decisions so that you minimize the activation of those genes and you can move in a forward movement. So when people tell you, well, you know, I just, I have anxiety, I have depression, I'm going to have to do something. Well, 
I don't agree. I've seen too many people over the years. Now, granted, some of the psychotropic medications that they have used, um, they, they help sometimes for a short time, but my experience has been they don't happen, help in the long run. They, they just kind of sometimes keep you to stop looking for the, the source of the problem. It can help you, because obviously if you're in a state of, of serious anxiety or you're feeling suicidal or something, I'm not going to say go pray about it. I mean, we're going to do something. But you have to recognize the difference and begin to try to empower yourself again by reconnecting to our Lord. That's the starting point. Everything has to start with that. So let's look at the next activity we have here, our little little acronyms they like to come up with, the DBT acronyms. And it stands for accepts. It means that when you're in a distressing emotion, a moment, it seems like it isn't going to end, right? I mean, has everybody, if you, everybody's been in that state at one point, you think, and talk to a teenager sometime, right? They're certain it's never going to end. You know, somebody broke up with them, they are certainly going to die before the end of the day. It's just, it's going to happen. This pain is so deep that they will never be able to process it. They will never be able to get through it. And many, many people get stuck. I know it's a professional term. You get stuck in that place, and then we have to go back and process through it. It's the only way you can move forward. But you've got to start from that place of knowing what you can do. So when you look at there's this intensity to it, the way I look at it, any kind of trauma especially, it's kind of like when you get a stain on your favorite sweatshirt and you're so mad, you know that that happened, and you're not going to throw it away, you're really mad. But over time, it kind of fades into the fabric. And that's what happens with trauma. You know, especially trauma that's been done to somebody. Because I worked with a lot of victims of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and that kind of thing. It's happened to them. I remember sitting in a judge's meeting one time, and they used this phrase in court where they say, okay, how can we make the victim whole? And I remember yelling out, you can't! You know, I mean, <laughs> because you can't. You can't fix that. So you, you wreck their car. You can go replace that. You can't do that when you've stolen someone's innocence. But what you can do is help somebody change the way they think about that and use that experience. So some of these activities that you can do, you want to find ones that give you joy. And you've got to make a list. You've got to have that go-to list, right? Um, contributing. Do something that allows you to focus on another person. I'm an enormous advocate of volunteerism. My poor kids. I mean, we've all their lives, we've volunteered for something. Volunteering does a couple of things. One, if you're looking at anxiety in particular, social anxieties, volunteering is a great way to reconnect. Why? Because they're so happy you're there, they're going to accept you, right? There's almost no risk involved when you do something like that. Um, comparisons. Put yourself in a situation that uh, you're know, comparing to something more painful. Now, my mom was notorious, was notorious for, think of those poor starving children in Cambodia. That was her favorite thing when we didn't want to eat liver and onions or something like that. Um, emotions. So do something to create a new emotion. 
Okay, that's a little harder than it seems too sometimes, right? When you're in the throes of anxiety or depression. When you're feeling depressed, it's like pulling a plow. It's hard to even think about getting up. And that is, in fact, a biochemical influence because it drains you. Particularly in this part of the country, there's not a lot of sun in the wintertime. And it's a huge contributing factor to the feelings of depression. So it's important for you to get out. I don't care how you do it. Maybe you can combine the two. You can say, well, I'm going to go out and volunteer for something. They're waiting for me. That can be the compelling reason. I know they're waiting for me. Even to go to mass, stand in the back. Father doesn't care. Okay, pushing away. So avoid a painful situation or block it from your mind by using a technique such as imagery. So back to the stopwatch. If you can set the stopwatch, uh, what do you think that does? Just the act. I don't have my phone. You can tell I'm, I'm old. I don't have my phone and I don't know where it's at. Um, so if you look at the stopwatch, what happens? You're not, you're not in the feeling. You have to look at the stopwatch. You have to set it. So you're taking yourself out of the emotion back up into logic where you want it so you can make a better decision. And then use the thoughts, the, the something neutral. Go to something, and we're going to get to that a, a little more intensely in a minute, but to something a little neutral, like an activity, like find uh, songs that you like to sing, you know, silly songs or something like that. Um, and then the sensations... This is another thing that works for people, particularly if somebody's in a full-on anxiety or panic attack. You can give them an ice to hold on. If they hold on to that, it's, it's shocking your brain out of that, that moment of anxiety. So you can take a closer look at those things too. Is everybody with me so far? Does anybody have any questions at this moment? Okay. Back into your head. Back into, into the thoughts so you can start. Sorry? Yes. Well, if you, if you look at an activity that requires that, and it can be something simple, like I said, like looking at the stopwatch and setting the stopwatch or something, it pulls you out of that. There's a couple of different strategies. I can talk to you more about those at the end. They're a little more, too more involved. It, it can be, but it's, it's more of a, an intense kind of, uh, almost like a, um, a, like a combination of, and I'm really butchering this a little bit, but it's more like a combination of like neurotherapy and uh, hypnosis. And they use the sim some of the similar kinds of things. So we can talk more about that afterwards. But those are important things for you guys to be paying attention to. That's good. Thank, for, thank you for those. So when we're looking back, though, on our families of origin, um, one of the other uh, handouts that I put in there, if you want to take a look at that, is called a genogram. If you want to look at that real quick, pull that one out. It might be at the end, actually. I might have put it out of order. But there's a thing called historical trauma. Has anybody heard that phrase before? 
So when we were talking about epigenetics and, and things that you're predestined to do, a lot of the behaviors that we have adopted, we've learned from our families. Okay, so as Father mentioned, you know, as Irish Catholics, um, <laughs> there's a, a research sociologist named Monica McGoldrick, and she says that the Irish have what they call a national inferiority complex. <laughs> and, and a lot of it comes from that survival's, survivor's guilt, you know, that, that happens, not unlike Jews. In fact, a lot of Catholics have more in common with Jews than we do with other Christians because of some of the historic um, traumas that have taken place. So I'm going to give you an example of how powerful it can be when I was in graduate school, I was studying with a guy who was uh, Jewish, and we were in a class called um, Family, Culture, and Diversity, or something like that. And we were expected to kind of look at some of our behaviors and, you know, some that we may or may not be aware of and, and see what, where those could come from. So he shared that his girlfriend told him that he hoarded food. And so what do we do, right? When you're in a relationship and someone points something out, what do you do? No, I don't. No, I don't. She goes, yeah, you do. He goes, no, I don't. So finally she said, okay, fine. I'm going to point it out. Okay, my kids are really good at doing that. Um, when you do something crazy, they point it out. But anyway, so she pointed it out and he was horrified. He was like, oh my gosh, why did I do that? So part of our exercise back then was to go to our families of origin, our parents, and, and, and ask them some questions. And we had a series of questions to ask them. Anyway, he discovered his parents had been incarcerated in a concentration camp. And he adopted this behavior that at that time was necessary, the stressor, the outside stressor, it was necessary to respond that way. But the stressor was long gone and yet they were still implementing that behavior. So that's what we have to look at. And the thing that was so interesting when he was sharing all this was, he said, I was a Jew in New York City. I wasn't in Vermont. Why would my parents not tell me about that? There were lots of people who had fled Nazi Germany to come to America and especially to New York. So he was, he was doubly confused about that issue. But a lot of it had to do with identity. And we'll get to that a little bit too, because as Catholics, we are Catholic. It's who we are. It's not a church we go to. Now, we might go to St. George or St. Pius or St. Thomas, but it's who we are. And similarly with Jews, that was one of the issues with a lot of my Jewish friends when they would have these situations happen. And um, you know, my daughter's grandma, who had to flee Nazi Germany, it was a very confusing time because you were being shamed for something that was not yours to hold. There was no reason for that. And that's kind of what hap is, is happening to people now, is we're having to look at that issue and look at it as identity, who we are. Who are we? When, when you watch kids make their first communion, what do they say? God made me to know and love him. That's it. That's all there is to it. So that's something I want you, when you look at this genogram, instead of looking at it the way 
you would like a family ancestry, family tree. I want you to do something really simple. There's some really complicated ones you can look for online if you're interested. But, but basically, I want you to, when you fill it out, and, and you don't have to do it right at this moment, but when you fill it out, I want you to not just put all the things that are listed on there, but then pick one adjective about the person that you're putting in your family tree. So if it was like um, my maternal grandmother, we would put, you know, saintly. She was the most devout Catholic on the planet. Died the most stoic death. Okay. So you, you put those kinds of things. Then you put what they died from. Why do you think we'd want to put what they died from? You're looking for patterns. This is all about information. So when clients come to me for counseling, I tell them to leave the judgment, the shame, all that stuff at the door because we're just working together to get information. With the information, then we can do something and we can restore our connection to our Lord and then go forward in faith the way we're supposed to. We can't be living our mission if we're all swimming around in anxiety or dragging the plow every day in depression. It's not helpful and you're not going to be able to get to where you need to go. So when you do this exercise, just look for the patterns. Look and see if like, um, I had one person who noticed after they put it in there that all the men were angry. She, the, the adjective for all the men was anger and they all died of heart attacks. I mean, that's informative, right? All the women were subservient and they all died of different cancers. So those are things you want to look for because you can make a different decision. You can say, I'm going to approach life from a place of joy because that's where I'm supposed to be. So when back to the, um, the, the next exercise we have is the distress tolerance skill. This will help you, but you really want to get down to the the bottom part where it says self-soothe with senses, that's a really important exercise. If you don't do anything else, that would probably be one of the most important things to do because when you've identified some sort of joyful activity, and I mean every time you hear something, every time you see something, every time you smell something, it gives you joy. You want to make a list of those things. Those are going to be your go-to things, right? And there are multiple times in the Bible that it's referenced that we need to be in connection with nature and appreciate nature. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, but there are people still lumbering about, not even paying attention to where they are. You need to take a minute every day and notice that. So take a look at that one too and see where that goes for you. And then the last thing we have for exercise is on the, the handout that I gave you as you're building your plan. Because remember, this is a progressive kind of project where we start with our Lenten obligations and then add something every week. So this week, we're going to be adding journaling. So when we were looking at the, the reciting the different scriptures, and, and I've included some of those in there, you also want to journal for just a second. Just journal for a minute, just how are you feeling at that moment, and then again, you're looking for patterns and ways that you can mitigate some of the difficult and negative emotions and turn them into that reconnection 
back to the current that we want flowing within us. So you're going to be adding that in. And then you can also look to see maybe there's different times of the day where you kind of start to see that biome drop and you need to address some of those things. I know our registered dietitian I used to work with, when people were struggling with, with disengaging from substance use, they would have massive sugar cravings. And a lot of times it would happen like at three or four in the afternoon. Well, that happens to a lot of people anyway. That's why Snickers does those commercials with that exact thing to try to get you to go do it, right? Um, but she would ask people, don't wait for that. Eat an apple at like three in the afternoon. Then you can mitigate the craving. It's amazing how that happens. Well, I want you to do the same thing when it comes to emotions. Have the go-to emotions. Don't wait for distress and then try and figure it out. I mean, we used to live in a place that there was a fire every other week. I mean, you're not going to like go, oh, man, I guess I, I should have had that 10,000 gallons of water. Oh, I should have had an escape plan. should have figured that out, right? You want to do that in advance. So um, when it comes down to the anointing of the sick, has anybody been anointed? They're willing to raise their hands if they have been anointed? Okay. It's a very intense moment, isn't it, when that happens? And I think when we look at, we are at our most vulnerable when that happens. I mean, it, it's a very stressful experience and you're at your most vulnerable and it'll be the weakest you'll ever be. When, when you need that anointing of the sick, it's going to be the weakest it's ever been. But what a lot of people don't realize is, and, and when you reflect back on the catechism and the way they teach it too, I think a lot of people are attached to the outcome right? When you're getting the anointing, don't you think of it as like the magic wand? You're going to get the outcome you want. Okay, okay, I'm going to, okay, whatever I did wrong, Lord, you know, you're doing all that bargain. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just let me live, you know, and people get in that state. Sometimes that's not what it is. It's about what Father talked about this morning in the homily. It's about coming to terms with your connection and your relationship with our Lord. Are you there? If you aren't, get there. And I'm telling you to do it now just like Father, we're on repeat here this morning. Because don't wait till you're literally on your deathbed to let go of some of these things. Why? I mean, there are people, I've met people in Ireland, this one nun, that my daughter knows her, and uh, she goes home in the summertime and helps on their family farm. And she was telling me, they were like the Hatfields and McCoys with their neighbors. And at one point, they were like four generations in to this grudge. And as a nun, she finally went up to one of the, the family members and asked them, does anybody know what we're fighting over? And no one did. And now they work together because it's hard for farmers to stay in business. So they work together on that. So it's important for you to notice that we can't be attached to the outcome. That's part of the problem is when we get attached to the outcome, you have to, you have to sit in objectivity for a minute to try to figure out what does this mean? What does this pain mean? Because if you instantly get out of it, you're not gonna learn a thing. And it's, and it's wasted. I've seen some terrible, terrible things. I had to work with a guy who had miss, was missing three limbs, three limbs after combat. I mean, it's hard to try to find peace when you're struggling physically. But emotionally is the one thing 
that can never be taken from you. That spiritual connection to our Lord never goes away. So that's the one, that's the anchor. But you've got to be feeding and watering it all day long to make sure that works. So in the church, they say that it's an outward sign established by Jesus Christ to confer inward grace. That's what it's about. When you're facing illness of any kind, especially life-threatening illness, this is the time. But I want you guys to do it now. Don't wait. What, what is unfinished? Work it out and do it now. I mean, right now, I have um, my father passed away at 93 years old, and we had in, gone with uh, doing some of the exercises for graduate school, um, had him come and meet up with a counselor, and worked out some things. And then when he passed, it was grief, and we're going to get to that in another session, but, um, but it wasn't complicated grief. And that's what happens to people. They don't solve some of these issues now, and then it becomes much more difficult than it has to be. And if you can find a way to share some sort of hope for people that they are going to be able to find that peace, any kind of illness, whether it's something that is going to pass you know, on, I mean, it's just, but it's a difficult illness or something, if you can go out as we're trying to promote our collective walk in faith and go out and do something, it's, it's really, really moving to do that if you've never done it before, to go out and visit somebody in a hospital or assisted living or something like that. And I was very, very blessed to have a, um, a friend of mine who's an Irish priest who might be watching this, I'm not sure, but he was truly the most pastoral person I've ever met in my life. It was absolutely a gift to witness him in the hospital, because that is the guy you want with you at the end. He holds your hand, and he means it. He's the most authentic person on the earth, and has people so peaceful that no matter what the outcome, they found peace. And that's what our aim is. That's what we want to do. So we got to look at this and take this these exercises so we can get ourselves into a place of anchor and peace and calm so we can live our mission. So why don't we go ahead and end with St. Michael's prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Anybody want to lead it for me? St. <laughs> Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world trying to ruin souls. Amen. Thank you so much for your attention. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.